Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Joining me again this morning on Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I have the wonderful privilege of having the voice of golf, Peter Kessler, back on the show with me. As you know, Peter is one of the great golf historians of all time. He's interviewed every great golfer, just about, I would assume, every great golfer uh, from the modern era. Uh, I'll get Peter's thoughts on Tiger Woods, Jordan Spieth, and tap into his vast knowledge of the history of the game when he joins me here in just a few moments. But before we get started, I want to kick off the show like we do every single week here on Next on the Tee by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military. We want to thank you for your daily sacrifices and all you do to keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank those of you who serve or have served in every branch of the military and public service. We truly appreciate what you do to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor for us to be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. We also want to thank everyone listening in on iHeartRadio as well as great radio sites across the Internet like Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, Player.fm, and Blog Talk Radio. Also want to give a special shout-out to our good friends Mike Kovacs, Ben Kerr, Mark Modeski, and the rest of the great staff over at LastWordOnSports.com. Check those guys out online and on Twitter. Their site, I'm telling you, is absolutely fantastic and contains great content across all sports, and their staff of writers are just wonderful. You're going to love going to their site every day for your sports news. If you haven't been there yet, then check it out and then bookmark it. Again, LastWordOnSports.com. Plus, if someone's dragging you to the mall, it's the holiday season, uh, I'm sure you know, you're going to be spending your time out and about doing your holiday shopping, or you're going to be at the grocery store, or maybe you're just tired of the same old, same old on your commute. Well, then download the Player.fm or Stitcher app on your smartphone and take us with you. Let us give you something to fun, something fun to focus on you know, while you're out and about. Our show is brought to you by the great folks over at Kyven Foods. Former Bengals and Falcons tight end Reggie Kelly has created a wonderful array of products. His salsas, his sauces, and his spices, all natural, and they're going to liven up everything you're going to put out on your, your spread, whatever you're going to be doing. you got your tailgate party, your holiday party, people coming by the house. Everything you put out on your spread, these sauces and spices are going to liven it up for you. So wow your friends. And do yourself a favor. Check them out online. You can find them at kyvan82.com. That's kyvan, K-Y-V-A-N, the number 82.com. All right, I've already got my first guest, Peter Kessler, hanging on the line with me, so let's get right to him. Back 
With us on the Kyvan Foods guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Peter's interviewed, like I said a moment ago, every major golf figure in the you know from the 20th and 21st century, just about. In the early to mid 90s, you know Peter was the voice of HBO Sports. He moved on to become the primary broadcast talent when the Golf Channel launched back in January of 1995. Also hosted his own show on Sirius XM's PGA Channel. You can hear him hosting the Peter Kessler Show that's available out on iTunes. And, and when I tell you this, I absolutely mean it as sincerely as I possibly can. Over the last year or so, few people have asked me about, you know, who did I listen to or who did I watch to, to you know, glean some, you know, some great nuggets for how to interview people. And I say two people. Bob Costas and Peter Kessler. Peter is a broadcasting genius, and I am so thrilled to have him back with me this morning. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for being here again. Well, if you introduce me like that every time, I'll come back more often. <laughs> you got it, my friend. Every All time. All right. How are you? Nice to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Peter, let's get started. You know, a hot topic around golf at any time over the last you know 15 years or so has been anything to do with Tiger Woods. His new coach is, you know, Chris Como, a guy most, you know, non-golf junkies may have never heard of until Tiger named him his coach. He's a young guy, 37, teaches at Glen Eagles Country Club in Texas. Golf Digest did name him one of the best young teachers back in 2013. His other clients are guys like Aaron Badley, Trevor Immelman. Were you surprised he went in that direction with a young guy like Chris? I was shocked. I was truly shocked at at every single thing about it that I can think of. First of all, the timing totally blew me away. How quickly, how very, very quickly after breaking up with Sean Foley, he would hook up with somebody. It just, it just talks about how needy he is on the practice tee. How, how important it is for another pair of eyes to be on him. I mean, he couldn't even go from the PGA Championship to his own tournament and trust himself through the one tournament in 2014 that he was going to play four months after he had to walk off after the PGA. You had really got a new coach for that. And then how do you pick this person? How do you not pick a person who has a successful track record of working with terrific players? This guy's worked with only the most marginal of players. He's never done anything with them to, to make them better players. Their records are bad right from the very beginning. And he's supposed to be a fellow who is brilliant at biomechanics, and that's the reason that he and Tiger are hooking up, because they both have such a strong belief in what biomechanics mean to the golf swing. Only problem is he's a school student. He hasn't done any biomechanical engineering with anybody. He doesn't have a track record. He doesn't have students. There isn't anything He's a student in school. He's not even allowed to do the work that he wants to do with Tiger Woods legally. Some of the stuff he can't do because he doesn't have his degree and isn't allowed to apply it. So you pick a school student with a no track record of working with professionals that anybody has heard of or even a top-flight amateur, it just is absolutely stupefying to me. He relies on people so incredibly hard. I mean, Nota Begay... Seriously, Nota Begay is like the genius of all geniuses, and what he says, that's the road the Tigers should go down. You know, Nota's introduced him to quite a few people, and none of those things have worked out like right from the very beginning. And this is another example of Tiger being extraordinarily needy, grasping onto the first thing that comes along, not having a good feel for the big picture, 
not trying to work stuff out on his own. And then, as you saw from his exhibition in Isleworth, where he finished a mere 26 shots behind the winner on his home course that he's played a thousand times, um, it was clear the experiment so far is not working. You know, this business of changing release points and my pattern and all of that stuff, it's all a bunch of hooey. He practices just fine when when he's by himself. He's got a short game area at his home that's better than any short game area anywhere except for Augusta National. You don't think he's been hitting chips and pitches the last four months? That's all he's been able to do until recently. His chipping should be so good, it should be better than it ever, ever was. It is very, very, very top of his peak, and it's atrocious. I mean, you can see as... Just as a recreational player watching him, you can see what's going on. I mean, his left shoulder is going down, and his right shoulder is going up, and his weight's going to his left leg, and then he's unrot then he's rotating the right shoulder back down and the left shoulder up. That's a recipe for disaster. Anybody can see that. You're going to stick the club in the ground. You get shorter and taller on pitch shots. His action used to be so clean. He used to stay exactly six feet tall the entire swing. There's no dipping. There was no lengthening. There was no anything. And now it's a ridiculous move. And his feet are touching. I never saw anybody hit shots with their feet literally touching, touching. It's one thing to be like right next to each other a few inches apart when you're chipping. But when you're standing on two legs that are essentially one leg because they're so close together, you really are on one leg. You you can't keep your balance going back and through properly. There's a little weight shift in a in a chip shot. You move from your right to from your left to your right and from your right to your left. It's subtle, but it definitely happens. I mean you think of Tom Watson's chipping action, he released his right knee towards the target. I mean you could see his lower body action and you could see Tigers before. And last week it was just this little handsy and armsy thing that a 26 handicapper would have been embarrassed. He had almost as many chunks as he did birdies for the week on his home course where he went shot a 59, you know, and where he shoots lots of rounds on the low to mid-60s. I, I think the beginning of the experiment is unsuccessful. I'm worried about the medium and long-term nature of the experiment. And the only thing that I saw that gave me some hope is that he wasn't doing the come over the top with the face open and the right arm going around his body thing that he's been doing with Sean Foley. It looked much more like a golf swing with some freedom in it and some room to swing. He didn't look cramped and tight on a lot of the full shots, but a lot of the shots were pretty scruffy too. And yes, you could apply that to Russ, but I don't buy the short game being rusty. He's had four months to work on it. He chipped fine in practice at Iowa by the accounts of all the other players. No, this is tournament with this is you know, this is now tournament tiger, not tournament tough. Got the got the chipping yips, got the bunker yips. He made no putts outside of eight feet. From inside of thirty yards, he literally played like an average double digit fifteen to eighteen handicapper. They don't make putts out of eight feet either. They they roll them up, they three putt. The eight that he made on the Sunday was so amazing when he had Two chunks followed by a blade, followed by a three putt, all on the same hole in consecutive shots. It was absolutely stunning to behold. So the early reports are, oh my goodness. 
So, you know, that brings up in my mind all the time, Peter, if if you're going to look at, you know, Tiger's swing, I, and I never understood this, you know, going, you know, back to, you know, the other coaches that he's had in the evolution of his golf swing. But why, you know, with all, you know, all the video technology, why isn't he going back to the swing that he had when he first came out on the tour and he was so dominant? It seemed like all the other things that happened along the way started making his body break down. He had the knee problem. Now he's got some back problems. Why is he not going back to what was so successful? Why tinker with that? You were dominating the sport, and then you start tinkering. I don't understand. Well, you know, the swing that Tiger had when he won the Masters in 97 right. was the swing that was most likely the swing that was most Tiger's own. You know, when he and Butch started working together in 93, by 97, they'd worked together quite a bit, but they had made a lot of changes. It was it was refining. It was little subtle things. It wasn't a big overhaul at, um, at you know in those four years. Then you had the overhaul after the Masters, which took two years to complete, and that was Butch Harmon's swing that he gave to Tiger, and, and Tiger used Butch Harmon's swing until he broke up with him, and then went to Hank for the six-year period, and then he used. Hank's swing as opposed to his swing. And then he goes and uses Foley's swing. And now he's going to use Chris Como's swing. I just don't see how you can make so many swing changes, especially at this point in the proceedings when he's getting close to 40 years old, and and expect to play good golf. No, nobody else ever did anything like this. I mean, Jack Nicklaus never changed his swing. When he was 40, he worked on his chipping a little bit because he started to miss a couple of greens for the first time in his career. So what did he do after he worked on his chipping? He went out at the age of 40 and won the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship in the same summer. Right. But he did it with the with the golf swing he grew up with. Tiger said that he and Chris Como had gone back to look at all of the tape that they could find of Tiger when he was skinny and hitting the ball really far and to try to determine what he did that let him hit the ball so far. Well, I'm not so sure why it's a big like surprise or a secret. He had great speed. He had great balance. He had the best hand-eye coordination you could possibly imagine, being able to find the ball with his right hand no matter what swing he was making, no matter if he was on plane, off plane, shut faced open. It didn't matter. He could always find the golf ball. And he did it with great speed, and he did it with the speed that it, you know that an early twenty year that a twenty to twenty five year old has. He can't find that speed now. He's gonna be thirty nine in a few days. He can't find that speed now. He's not gonna make that swing now. He's not gonna be that skinny again. Yeah, he's skinnier now than he's been in a while. He clearly lost some weight and took off some of that muscle, which was probably it certainly appeared to be a good thing just looking at his body shape recently. It looked more like a golfer's and less like a linebacker's, but I uh, I can't imagine why they don't try to go back to the next swing, the butt swing. He doesn't have to snap the knee hard. It could be a softer knee, but he could still make that swing. It was just geometrically sound. It was it was on plane. It was really simple. He didn't bob up and down. There were no really fast moments except the one you couldn't see at impact. I mean, it was it was very three quarterish. I was there. I would I was there in two thousand. I was there in two thousand and one. I was in there in person. I was inside the ropes. I watched him hit every freaking shot that was important at the time. And I can tell you with a hundred percent certainty that this had nothing to do with putting. It had nothing to do with putting whatsoever. And in fourteen major championships that he won, 
He led the field in greens and regulation nine times out of 14, and he wasn't exactly last the other five times. So what that tells you is he didn't do it with his putting. He did it with his long game, which is an impossible thing to do at the pro ranks. It's one thing to pick up a shot on a guy on a green with a birdie, but it's really hard to pick a shot up on a guy going from tee to green at the professional ranks. They all take the same number of shots. They all hit the ball roughly the same distances with all their clubs, roughly. And they don't give up shots tee to green. So for Tiger to win with you know with greens and regulation says so much about his ball striking and says about his putting, he must have putted fine. He must have had a, had a lot of one and two putts, not so many one putts, lots of two putts, not too many three putts. And that was it. He would, like at Pebble, that wasn't putting at all. He would knock it down the fairway, knock it on the green. He'd take one or two putts. He'd go to the next hole. And it wasn't like they were birdie barrages. He got to 12 under by the end of the week, but he built it slowly. Two under here, three under there, two under here. And, you know, and it was otherworldly. But again, had nothing to do with putting, had nothing to do with chipping. I mean, obviously he could chip and putt, but he wasn't doing a lot of chipping in those days because he wasn't missing too many greens. So that's the swing I'd like to see him go back to it. It right. looked to me like it was the easiest on his body. That That's my view today, that even with the leg snapping, the left leg, which good players' legs do firm up at that point. There's a few guys who've had soft knees, but... Generally, there's a firming up of the left side through the hit. It doesn't have to be violent. It just has to happen. And so I think we'll see a softer motion from Tiger, but I look for your comment to be on the money and that we see an older swing of Tiger's as his new swing. And to the point you made a moment ago, Peter, about Tiger being needy, and I don't think it's just Tiger. I think you've got the majority of the golfers out there now on tour needy, needing a coach, you know, to be there with them and the entourage of folks with the sports psychologists and, you know, the like all there. I, you know, I remember hearing Mr. Nicholas talk about how, you know, once he got out on tour, once he was out playing, he didn't have anybody else in his ear. He would go to Jack Grout initially, and he had you know a couple of other people that he would go to at the beginning of the season. He'd start from scratch, making sure his grip was right, you know, making sure he was swinging well, and everything was you know kind of in order. But once the season started, he was on his own, and I think Jack Grout had taught him to you know you know be responsible for his own game. But now. These guys can't go anywhere, it seems like, without, you know, like I say, the whole entourage of folks and people in their ears and all this sort of stuff. It just seems, it, it, I find it interesting that they don't trust themselves and trust the swings that got them to where they are and to be able to carry forward with that. And to your point, Tiger not being able to go a couple of weeks, it seems, without being able to say, so-and-so is my coach. It, it, it's a mystery to me why, because you think the more voices in your head, right? I mean, golf is full of, and, you know, we, we've talked about this in the past, and I talked about it with Bobby Clampett earlier this year, you know, all the different voices in your head, and do this and do that and think about this and breathe in and breathe out. And, I mean, there's just so much. It seems like it's just causing for more confusion than it is going to be to settle a guy's mind down and let him play, his, you know, play golf, as you mentioned, freely. Well, you know, all of this started with David Ledbetter. You know, until Ledbetter came out with Nick Faldo in the mid-'80s, you didn't see any teachers at golf tournaments and stuff. It, it was just the players. No no teachers went, like literally no teachers. And those guys obviously became extremely self-sufficient 
as as part of the process of learning to play golf because they were forced to be self-sufficient. I mean, Jack Nicklaus said it so many times in, in so many different ways, but the message was that if I'm on the golf course in a tournament and something is not right with my golf swing, I want to know my golf swing well enough to know that I can fix it on my own and then make three birdies in a row, not hold the ship together, but actually move forward. And Jack, Jack Nicholas was always able to make those little corrections. He was able to even make corrections during swings. I mean, the famous one iron right. he hit at Pebble, Pebble Beach, you know, he talked about making a correction on the downswing because he had taken it back too far to the inside, you know, and then hit the flagstick from a couple of hundred yards away with a one iron and the ball settles down four inches. So, those guys are all self-sufficient, and their swings never went kerflui. I mean, Arnold's swing always worked. Billy Casper's swing always worked. So did Gary. So did Jack. So so did Lee Tribune. It always worked. There was never, like, a problem. All they did was keep it in shape. They weren't trying to figure out how to play, and they weren't showing up with teachers. I mean, Ray Floyd, I mean, his dad taught him to play, but... He once said to me, my dad wasn't a very good player. He was only a two. And I thought, I would like to be a not a very good player and only a two. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so when Ledbetter and Faldo got together in 85, you know, it was a two-year rebuilding program, and Ledbetter started showing up, and then other coaches started showing up. But he was the first superstar, you know, coach who marketed himself thusly. But I, I think it's I think that's one of the reasons why most of the players – are considerably less consistent than generations of long ago. I mean, when even when Greg Norman was playing, Greg was always competitive. He was just he was just always competitive. Faldo was was always competitive. Sebi was always competitive. Watson was always competitive. Arnie, Jack, Gary, Billy, Lee. I mean, you had a lot of guys who were always competitive throughout their career, who were able to sustain the quality of their shot making. And now you just have everything is so inconsistent. You know, Zach Johnson will show up for a few months and then he'll disappear for ages while he goes to work with Mike Bender and makes what appears to me to be a quite of a curious swing. And and Zach is a tough player to embrace as somebody you like because he looks like a bug with those glasses. He doesn't look like a person. Those are crazy glasses and it makes him look crazy and you can't identify with him. And glasses and sports don't really go together, you know, very well. I mean, in terms of wearing sunglasses, you don't see a lot of that. Roger Federer doesn't wear sunglasses. And, you know, and to pick a couple that make you look like an ant or something from, uh, you know, a comic book, I just think is wildly unattractive. And I, I think what, And I think these guys make themselves unattractive in the sense that it's so corporate now, and just as you suggested, with all of these people and the entourage and stuff, it's like a movie star showing up with 11 people, including a hairdresser and makeup artist. And yeah, <laughs> I, I find the whole thing very distasteful. I don't like seeing the teachers on the tee. You know, you no other sport do you see anything like that. I mean, you know, Federer has somebody that he hits balls with and he talks about, but that's all like quietly done behind the scenes. 
You know, they, they, that's not up front and center and hitting with his coach and going over to talk to him in between points. None of that stuff. You know, and in golf, as soon as the round is over, the guys run back to the range and they get the video thing going again and they sit down and go through all that stuff. That's why they're inconsistent because they can't fix their own swings during a round of golf, which is why there are almost no great players anymore. I mean, like, literally, you know, who's a great player right now? Is anybody a great player? I don't know. I think Rory McIlroy might raise his hand if you ask that question. Rory McIlroy. I like Jordan Spieth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's about as deep as I go towards greatness. Yeah, I mean, Rory's definitely on the cusp of Jordan Spieth's got a real shot at it. But nobody else is like a consistent winner. You know, you, you hear from a guy with look, Phil Mickelson. Here's a perfect example. Take Phil Mickelson. And the year before last, he won the Open Championship and one other event. Those were the two weeks that he played well in 2013, and one of the weeks he picked was the right week to play really good golf at the Open Championship. But he only has two or three good weeks a year. That's it. He doesn't have seven. He doesn't have ten like Tiger used to, or even 15 or 18 like Tiger used to. He has two. And sometimes he has three. And that's his whole year. And it's all because they're so wildly inconsistent. He's wild tee to green. His short game is vastly overrated. Even It's either on or it's not on. His short game isn't even close to what Tiger's was when Tiger was playing. Not even on the same planet. Phil was hitting these high shots in there and trying to stop him, and Tiger would get the ball down on the ground and roll it up to the edge of the hole. But you could just tell watching him practice who, who the better short game player was. So here's Phil, right. two or three good weeks here. We say one of the greatest players of all time, and he's basically the second or third, but the second best player of his own time after Tiger Woods. And, you know, and then he's got B.J. and Ernie, and you've got a few guys right after that, you know, and Padraig Harrington in that three-major championship. But five is the number at which we say you're one of the best players of all time, and he's, one of the, he's probably the most inconsistent great player in the history of the game. Mm-hmm. Now, yesterday, a number of outlets kind of getting on the Rory McIlroy topic. A number of outlets, you know, reported that you know Colin Montgomery says that Rory McIlroy is better than Tiger ever was. Is that is there any credence to that? Do you think, or is that Colin Montgomery back in you know his European, uh, you know, his a guy that will probably eventually play for him, whether it's on a Ryder Cup or or uh, you know some other event like that? But is is that just sort of European bravado? Or do you think it's got some credence? It's not European bravado. It's got no credence. What it has is stupidity. It's such a dumb remark. It's so uninformed. It so truly overlooks the historical reality of the situation. It's totally mind-boggling. To suggest that Rory's taken it one step beyond where Tiger's ever gone before, he, he did not do that. You know, Tiger decimated the fields, and did it with consistent play. The two best things about Tiger were that he won, and the other thing was is that he was incredibly consistent. Tiger was always there. Rory's there. Sometimes in last year, in 2013, he played very iffy golf. I don't even think he won a tournament. Maybe he won at the very end of the year, the Australian, uh, beating Adam Scott on the final hole. And that, you know, jump-started his nice 2014 season, better than nice, two major championships, a world right. golf championship, uh, the B, the BMW, which is the flagship event on the European Tour. He played really good in the Ryder Cup he had, 
You know, he had a tiger-esque ear. He had a really tiger-esque ear. But a tiger-esque ear doesn't make him a tiger, and it certainly doesn't make him a tiger 2.0. You know, Tiger's clearly demonstrated, I mean, Rory's clearly demonstrated at this point that he's the best player right now. I don't see anybody like Adam Scott or any of those guys taking his place or Keegan Bradley or any of that stuff. I don't know. I think they're all. I think they're all a full. Well, Keegan Bradley, I think, is a few steps below Rory, and Adam Scott, I think, is one full step behind Rory. But you know, the only other guy that looks like he might be able to stand up to the pressure could be this Jordan Spieth, who doesn't hit the ball as well as Rory does. Doesn't hit it as high. Doesn't hit it as far. Doesn't hit it as accurately. But, I mean, he knows how to stitch around the golf together like nobody's business. But, yes, I would say Rory is – great is such a tough word. He's he's on the verge of greatness. Jordan Spieth has a chance to get to the verge and then get into greatness. But we have we have a lack of great players now. I don't say, think Martin Keimer's a great player. He's a good player. You know, Henrik Stenson's a good player. We don't have you – know, Jason Day's a good player – you know, none of them jump out to you and say, you know, I've got five major championships. Adam Scott's got one. Rory's got four and nothing, and everybody else has nothing. So, you know, to say any of these players are great is truly unfair to the great players of the past. Great players win major championships. Great players are consistent. Great players get it done when it's really important, and they don't disappear at key times. And, you know, when everybody says, boy, did Ricky Fowler have an unbelievable year because he finished top fives in majors. He'd have been better off winning one major and missing the cut at the other three. That would have been a better performance than four top fives. Four top five says, and I can't really get the deal done, but I'm very good, but I'm just not a closer. So winning is winning. Not winning is not winning. Consistent is consistent. Not consistent is not consistent. Great is great, and not great is not great. And there's too much of this. And going back to the original point about Colin Montgomery, it's such a stupid remark because Colin knows it's not true. He played with Tiger. Tiger took him to the freaking cleaners. And Colin Montgomery played a lot of his primary golf when Tiger was playing his primary golf. You know, what did he beat Colin Montgomery by at the U.S. Open in 2027 shots, I believe it was. So don't tell me about this month. He got beat by 27 shots at the U.S. U.S. Open by Tiger, where you were able to make the cut and still lost by 27 shots. He was never in his league. He was never a great player. Monty has been caught cheating on the golf course. He's a fascinating character, but his comment about Rory is so misinformed and so misplaced, I was stunned that he made it. Mm-hmm. So we've we've thrown out Jordan Spieth's name a couple of times so far. I mean, he's, he's, he's 21 years old, and over the last two seasons... He's played in 50, 50 events out on the PGA Tour. Won once, finished second five times, has 17 top tens, and finished in the top 25 31 times out of those 50 events, Peter. If, if golf fans, particularly American golf fans, are now trying to figure out which wagon they're going to hitch themselves to if it's not Tiger Woods anymore, is this the kid to do, you know, to do just that? I certainly think so. He's done some very cool stuff in a really short period of time. You know, he shot 62 at Quail Hollow playing with Phil. That's a really hard golf course. He shot 63 playing with Tiger. He shot 63 to close off the uh, Australian 
just a couple of weeks ago. Right. He then shoots another 63 at Isleworth to tie the course record that was set the day before by Patrick Reed. He really knows how to shoot low numbers, and apparently he doesn't care who he does them in front of, and, and he's capable of shooting low numbers in front of anybody. So that's that's a, a huge, huge, huge first step, is that he doesn't seem to be afraid. He and Patrick Reed, uh, I really like. I They both have something. Patrick Reed is more demonstrative, but when I when I look at the two of them, I see a steeliness, a toughness that I don't really see in a lot of other players. I don't feel like Phil Mickelson is steely or tough or anything like that. These guys are steely and tough. I I think that they're going to play their best golf in important circumstances. I really do. I mean, Jordan Spieth, you know, Roger Maltby said on the telecast when he won at Isleworth, well, he's not the best iron player, he's not the best this, he's not the best that. But he didn't make it sound like he was reading the statistics. He just made it sound like, well, he's not very good at this and he's not very good at that. And he didn't mean that. He meant statistically, you know, the PGA Tour stats, Jordan Spieth is not that high in those categories, but he was like seventh all around in total scoring, even though he was like 159th in total driving or something. But he was seventh in scoring. What does that tell you? It tells you he knows how to stitch his game together and that he knows how to get it up and down and he's not hitting any scruffy chips. I watched him in Iworth. I was I went over there. It's only about 20 minutes from where I live, and I watched a lot of the guys play golf. He hit shots that nobody else hit. He hit some irons that nobody else seemed to be capable of hitting that week. The 12th hole at Iworth is a goofy hole. It's You drive through a shoot of trees, over a crest, down a hill, and then you have a green downhill with the lake in front and left. But the green tilts so much from right to left that you can land a shot on the right side of the green and just have it start to roll down the hill and, and into the water. It's a really stupid hole, really poorly conceived. Patrick Reed, you know, two times hit shots right of the green to try to bounce it off the hill gently to let it settle on the green, and two of them went into the water. And it wasn't like he mishit them. When Jordan Spieth played it in the last round, he did it in such in a way that I had never seen it. I hadn't seen anybody play the hole. He took the ball about 20 feet long and right of the pin and just let it quietly drift down without a bunch of spin, just quietly drifted down to six or eight inches of the hole. Nobody else hit a shot like that. Nobody else was able to do that. Patrick Reed was driving himself crazy trying to figure out how to get the ball in play. They all were on that hole. There's, it's a, just a goofy hole. There's a few really goofy holes there. And uh, I just think Spieth did everything better than everybody else by a ton. Look at his short game, man, when he had a tight pit. It was so funny, the announcer, you know, Tiger starts chunking it, so all of a sudden, you know, the announcers are going, well, PGA Tour players have a very difficult time chipping into the grain uphill. Since when? When was that ever a problem before? I've never heard that. I've been around the game my entire life. I've never seen anything about chipping into the grain uphill for PGA Tour professionals and extraordinarily. It's crazy. Who could say something <laughs> like that? It couldn't be easier for good players. Yeah, they missed him. It's a tough shot because it wasn't the contact that was so tough. It was the fact that the landing areas on the top of the greens are so small, like a yard, that when you landed on that beginning of the green, you have almost no room to do it. The guys were just trying to hit a little too softly to those spots. But they were mishitting the distance of the shot as opposed to outright 
chunking the shot. They just kept landing it short. So, yeah, they were hitting it heavy, and, yeah, a lot of guys were having trouble with it, but it's not exactly a shot that you think of as PGA Tour players having difficulty with. That's a shot that you and I might have difficulty with. But Jordan Spieth didn't have any problem with it. Jason Day didn't have any problem with it. And Jason Day said he played with Tiger on the Monday and that he had absolutely no problems with his chipping. It was totally spot on. So, uh, yeah, I think we saw things that I worth from Jordan Spieth that, you know, birdieing 18, that's the hardest freaking hole. It's such a hard hole just to hit the green and two. You know, and then he runs in that birdie to shoot 63 on Saturday and put an exclamation point on the proceedings and won by 10 shots. And, you know, the week before, he just decimated the field with his final round 63. At one point early in the round, you know, it was he and Adam Scott and a few other guys, and 10 minutes later, Jordan Spieth had just completely run away with the thing. He just made so many birdies. It was crazy, Bill. You know, Rory McIlroy said after Spieth shot the 63 at the Australian on the final day on a ridiculously, ridiculous Jack Nicklaus course with lots of wind and perched greens, a really a stupid golf course. You know, and, and Rory McIlroy said, I could have played 100 rounds out there today and I never would have sniffed a 63. And that is a really big statement. If I could have played 100 rounds on this golf course today, I wouldn't have shot a 63. So Spieth is the real deal when it came, comes to being able to put the ball in the hole you know, he had a chance to win the players. He had a chance to win the Masters. You know, he was then he was only twenty, and uh, I think uh, I, I think we're going to see some really really terrific things out of him. But I think he'll do it in kind of a way that like Curtis Strange used to do it. You know, where he wasn't the longest driver and he wasn't the longest this or that, but he was able to really stitch his rounds together. And if he's not one of the best putters I've ever seen in the last, you know, 15 years, I don't know who is. His putting is crazy good. It makes everything. It makes everything from all kinds of distances. And the ball rolls in the hole at a beautiful speed. He doesn't hit his four footers hard like some of the guys. Phil Mickelson hits those so hard sometimes, and they lip out. Uh, he just rolls those beautifully. He's got soft hands. I love the position of his shoulders when he puts their level because his left hand is low. I think he's going to be the real deal. So, Peter, let's let's go back a little bit. Talk a little bit about um, you know the guys that have you know, come before this generation. I had the the privilege to interview Dave Stockton a few weeks ago. You know, he's won. He, he did win officially 10 times on the regular tour. There's an 11th victory, I think, that they've kind of pulled out of the mix for him. Uh, two majors, won the 70 and 76 PGA Championship. Uh, he won 14 times on the Champions Tour, and goodness knows he's one of the best putters of all time. Yet he's not in the PGA Hall of Fame when someone like Fred Couples, much younger guy, you know, won one major, is in. Does that make sense to you? Why, 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 why no love for Dave Stockton? Well, I would, I would certainly put David before I'd put Freddie in, uh, no question about it. He was, he was a better player than Freddie, and he had one-tenth the physical equipment to work with. I mean, Freddie Couples should have won 40 times with five or seven majors. He won 15 times with one major. That's like crazy. 30 years, that swing won 15 times? Really, he could only win once out of every 80 tournaments? That's how bad it was? I mean, literally, he got 40 events on the tour a year, so he won one every other year, one out of 80 events with that golf swing. Dave Stockton, on the other hand, made the most of what, what he had. He hurt his back as a teenager in a surfing accident and compromised his swing. And he was the kind of guy, when he came out on tour, that he would hit like eight greens, 
but he would have 23 or 24 putts. And he didn't really know that he was different from anybody else. He thought that was how you played golf. You had no putts, and you, you hit not too many greens, but you got it up and down all over the place, and that was that. And then he found out that he was special, that he hit a lot fewer greens than the really terrific players, but he putted a lot better than most of the terrific players. And the thing about Stockton was when he had a chance to win, he usually won. You know, if he was, like, right there, he usually won. If Billy Casper was right there, he usually won. If Jack Nicklaus was right there, he usually won. If Freddie Couples was right there, he usually lost. So, yeah, Stockton, not even close in terms of comparing him with Couples. I'll never forget that in 76, when he won that PGA, he had about a 15-footer to win, and he was notorious for stepping up to a putt and just looking right down and hitting it briskly and not taking a lot of time. And he did the same thing with that putt. He just stepped into it so quickly, took one look, no practice strokes, and boom, right in the hole to win. That that did a lot for his reputation, that particular putt. Um, and he's turned out to be a terrific teacher. I disagree completely with his his primary philosophy about practice strokes. Because he says when he has somebody come in, he has them write their signature. And then he has them carefully try to copy that signature. And that's what he says practice strokes are like. That if you just step up and hit one, it'll be like writing your signature. It'll be free and smooth and easy the first time. But if you make a practice stroke, then you're going to try to duplicate the practice stroke. And I always feel like that's not what recreational players do when they take practice strokes. They do the Goldilocks theory. This is too big. This is too small. This is just right. And that's what people are looking for when they're making practice strokes. They're looking for the one that feels the most correct. And then you do try to duplicate that sensation. Why in the world wouldn't you try to duplicate what felt like a, sensa- like a successful sensation? Dave Stockton was just able, you know, had such tremendous feel that he didn't need any of that stuff. But everybody else needs that stuff. Most players need to take a couple of practice strokes to get a feel the stroke ought to be, particularly when putting, because every single putt, well, like every full shot too, is completely different. If you play the same course every single day, every shot is still a little bit different, even if you hit it in generally the same areas off the tee. They move the pin, the green is faster, the wind is up, the rate, whatever it is. It can, all of the, all of the thing, variables in golf come into play all of the time, particularly in putting. You know, every putt has a stroke that will fit that particular putt. And a lot of teachers believe that you're inventing new strokes for the putt at hand. Stockton believed that you just walked up to every putt and treated them exactly the same, and you took no practice strokes, and you took one look, and you were ready, set, go. Nicholas didn't putt like that. Davis Love putts like that. He takes a quick look, and he goes before you even know what happened. Aaron Badley putts like that. Spieth putts quickly, but not quick. You know, he 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 moves along quickly through his routine, but there doesn't seem to be a fast moment in it. It's just it's just a brisk kind of movement through the routine. I love the way he putts. I like the way that Rory McIlroy putts, but I disagree with Dave on taking practice strokes, making it akin to trying to make write your signature the second time. People don't leave you know their shorts their putts short and wimpy because they've tried to emulate a practice stroke. They generally are successful because they've tried to emulate a practice stroke, but. When you talk about Dave Stockton's track record, he was a closer, 
and he was the guy who basically invented corporate outings. He would do 80 corporate outings a year. Right. Uh, yeah, about 80 corporate outings a year. So, you know, almost two times a week he'd be out there. So, you know, he invented all that and made great friends and made a lot of money doing it. But he's he's a fantastic guy, and I'm sure you had a great time talking to him. He's just so brilliant. Absolutely did. So when you think about the careers of guys like Dave Stockton and you know you and I've had the, the pleasure of talking to Billy Casper on this show you've you've talked to Mr. Casper many times over the course of your career but when you think of guys like those you know who didn't get the level of recognition that they actually earned on the golf course who are some other guys that you know uh through the course of history that have been such you know fantastic players but really history hasn't uh, hasn't been kind to them and given them the spotlight that they actually earned while they played the game well, I'd say Gary Player is the quintessential example you know here's a guy from South Africa 5 foot 7 weighed 145 pounds and it took him 9 flights and 40 hours in the 1960s to fly from South Africa to the United States 9 flights 40 hours, six children, no disposable diapers. So that was a lot of fun. So he had to deal with all of that stuff and still play great golf all over the world. I mean, he's traveled more miles than any other athlete that ever lived, literally. Nobody's traveled more miles than Gary Player to to play their sport. Now, here's a guy who won nine major championships. Freddie Couples has one major championship. Adam Scott has one major championship. Darren Clark has one major championship. Nine. Nine. Arnold has eight, including his U.S. amateur. You know, Ben Hogan has nine, and only a few guys had more. You got Walter Hagen at 11, Jones at 13, Tiger at 14, and Jack at 18. You know, this was, you know, on a part-time schedule. Now, he generally played all the majors wherever they were. And that's what he concentrated on. But he didn't play that much other golf in the United States. He was a, really an international player. He won the uh, he won the Australian Open seven times. There was a great story that he and Jack and Arnold in the early 70s, late 60s, somewhere in there, were all at a tournament in Paris. And at that time, they were all being managed by Mark McCormick. So McCormick said you guys want to play in the Australian Open, the only way you can do it is you'd have to fly from here to New York, New York to L.A., L.A. to Hawaii, Hawaii to the Fiji Islands, the Fiji Islands to uh, part of Australia, and then another flight down to where the golf tournament was. But you'll only get there two hours before the tournament starts on Thursday because of the way it lays out. Do you want to go? Sir Ronald said, why would I go do that? Jack said, why would I go do that? Gary Player said, I'll go. So Gary Player takes that whole series of flights, lands two hours before his tea time. They give him a brand-new set of Dunlop clubs, and he wins by seven shots on a golf course he had never seen before. Wow. You know, that's what you call pretty cool. I mean, you know, those guys could do stuff like that. You know, they'd send Arnold somewhere to play. You know, Arnold would play good golf. You know, Jack Nicklaus won the Australian Open six times, so those guys traveled to play the really important events. And Gary, that was Gary's seventh that particular year, so he was pretty proud about that. But, you know, he's won 165 golf tournaments around the world, 165 golf tournaments. 
The only one who could have won as many golf tournaments in total would have been Sam Snead, and he didn't win as many, but he was the only one who could have, you know, approached that. Maybe Roberto DiVincenzo, but Roberto played most of his tournaments in Argentina, and I wouldn't count those as, count those as world-class victories. So players won more than anybody else has ever won. He's traveled more miles. He's won nine major championships, and nobody ever paid any attention to him, really, in the 1960s. Arnold was so handsome and you know, and had everything going for him. And, you know, Jack Nicklaus has such prodigious length and later became the Golden Bear that there was no territory for, for Gary to stake out. He was shorter. He had an accent. Uh, he didn't look like an athlete. He was, you know, looked very, very skinny. So it was hard to identify with him. You know, he would always wear all black. It was just hard to get inside of his shell and feel like you had a good sense of him where you could really get a good sense of Arnold, less or so with, with Jack. But, you know, Gary to me would be the quintessential, you know, underappreciated player, much more so than Billy Casper. You know, Billy Casper won 51 ties, but he only won three majors. That that was the problem with the record, was that he only won three majors. Gary won three times as many majors as Billy Casper does did. It's a better track record. And yet Billy even though the big three was more important than the big one, Billy Casper, you know, he was pretty much as popular as Gary Player, which isn't saying that he was particularly popular relative to Arnold and Jack. So they both had some underappreciation and under-recognition to overcome. But clearly those two, and I would put Player first, the most underappreciated, under-recognized records in the history of the game. Peter, a couple of weeks ago, I had the uh, opportunity to uh, interview Ben Wright. We all know what he said nearly, you know, 20 years ago that got him exiled from, you know, CBS Sports. But, you know, we see today, we see, you know, athletes getting, you know, second chances, third chances when they've made, you know, some level of mistakes and getting back into their sports. Why can't a guy like Ben Wright get a second shot and an opportunity to come back and do what he loves and uh, be back, on, you know, involved in the game of golf? I don't think there's any gigs. You know, when he left in 95 and they bought David Faraday in, they haven't made a change since then. It's the same guys. It's the same group of guys. you got Jim Nance and you've got David Faraday and you've got Gary McCord and you've got, you well, used to have a little bit of Bobby Clampett in there. But it's the same guys. Uh, uh, Vern Lundquist, I mean, it's the right. same group of guys. It never changes. It never changes. I mean, the only thing that changes is the uh, the, the analyst role, whether it's Watkins or whether it's Faldo. I mean, that's the only one that really changes. And so there's no place to put Ben unless they get rid of one of their other guys and just put him on a hole again. Uh, NBC hasn't had any turnover since oh two, almost literally. They've added Nota Begay and they lost Dottie, but you know that's it. I mean, you're talking about you know not not real high level changes there. So there's not a lot of gigs. There's nothing for him to do with the golf channel. They, if they would put him on live golf at the golf channel, then he could have some fun. They could put him on the 17th hole at you know, on the Thursdays and Friday coverage. I think he would get a great kick out of that. I think the yeah. audience would get a great kick out of him. 
It would put him in a place where it wasn't ridiculously high visibility so he could afford to make a mistake if he was going to make one. You know, Thursday, Friday coverage on the Golf Channel is a pretty quiet affair. He could have fit right in there, and if it had worked out, he could have gone on to the weekends again. But, yes, I think it's uh, very, very, uh, very, very difficult to accept that he's gone 20 years and has never had another chance and uh, has never been able to do the kind of work that he wants to do. I'm in somewhat the same situation as he is because there's no there's no shows that that would that could fit somebody like me right this minute. You know the CBS, Why? And NBC. Well, because CBS and NBC and ESPN don't do golf talk shows. You know, nobody really does that except for the Faraday Show, and that's not really a chat show. It's more about David and his drug problems. But you know, <laughs> there there aren't a lot of places to do that kind of work. NBC cut back on golf, CBS cut back on golf, ESPN cut back on golf. The Golf Channel doesn't seem to really make any show. They haven't really changed their lineup in years. It's the same old nonsense. They don't really have any good programming after you, you get rid of the live golf and, and their new show. There's nothing else to see there. So, you know, there's if they would make a show for somebody like me, that'd be great. If they would make a show for somebody like Ben, that would be great. But the opportunities are fairly small. You know, and at the other networks, they're non-existent. So, you know, I didn't have the situation that Ben did where I was embarrassed about what I said. Uh, he was embarrassed about what he said, and you know, and he had some drinking problems at the time, and I understand all of that. But I agree with you. He never got a second chance um, when he could have gotten the second chance when he could have gone back to CBS, and now I just wonder if it's not too late. To, to carry on that theme, Peter, there are so many guys, you know, from my generation of golfers, and I'm, you know, in my late 40s now. But, you know, we look, you know, with such reverence on, you know, the golf tournaments, you know, of the 80s and 70s. I mean, you know, I'm a huge Mr. Nicholas fan. I've, you know, followed him my in my whole life. And, you know, my generation kind of still looks at the 86 Masters as the greatest golf tournament of all time, at least maybe our favorite golf tournament of all time. Guys that are maybe a little bit older than I may look back at the 75 Masters and say that was one of the great golf tournaments of, of you know, our lives. So when you talk about there's not a place for, you know, a, a talk show like you've, you've hosted in your past, there's not a place for Ben Wright, you know, to go. Why is that? I mean, we love talking and hearing about, you know, golf the way it was, you know, when we were younger and watching those golf terms. You think people would, you know, my generation would flock to, you know, a show like the one that you put out when you were with the golf show. Why is there not a place for that anymore? Boy, I wish I had a really great answer for that. I I think that a lot of it is uh, a desire to get away from anything that you would call hardcore golf. You know, when the Golf Channel first started and I was basically doing most of the programming, I mean, I was on six and eight hours a day, including my reruns for several years, because that's all we had. It was the best stuff we had, but it was, you know, but it was also the only stuff that we had. And, uh... It was those were hardcore golf shows by any standard. I mean, the instruction was hardcore, the chats were hardcore. It was for really for people who really, really, really like golf, not for fringe players, and not just because Tiger Woods existed. They changed all of that, you know. And it's like if you go to the PGA Tour dot com website now, it's like it's almost unnavigable. 
mean, it's all these huge graphics. There's no list of like things that you can read anymore. It's just huge graphics, six inches by eight inches, and you've got to navigate all that stuff. It's all set up for young people. It's all set up for people with ADHD. It's all set up for people who have 30 seconds, you know, to look at something. It's it's set up for people who don't want to read and just want to see the visual. It's you know everything is has changed to where the websites look like you have 30 seconds to pay attention. So they give you these big boxes to click on, as if people wouldn't take their time and read the articles. And but now you know and then you have all of these journalists that are no longer writing articles. I mean, Golf World folded. So when you go to the digital golf world. The only person who's still on the staff is Tim Rosefort. Not just a feel-good, you know, schmaltzy thing he does. There's no real reporting or anything, or he talks about having breakfast at Fred Funk's house or something nobody could have any possible interest in. So, you know, so the the great journalists don't have a place to write anymore. So the hardcore writing is going away. Where's Dan Jenkins' stuff? Where's Jaime Diaz's stuff? Uh, you know, Alan Shipnock and Michael Bamberger still get printed, but not enough. There's a lot of guys that we're losing, you know, who are really great writers who can't find gigs anymore. So the hardcore stuff has disappeared. You don't have guys writing those books like Herb Wind and Charlie Price and Bernard Darwin. All that stuff is all gone. Nobody even buys golf books at this point unless it's an instructional book. So the hardcore nature of the game has 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 passed by television and these websites, but yet the hardcore golfer is still at the very heart of the game, in my view. I, you know, I believe out of the 25 million people who play golf to some extent in this country, that probably six to nine million of them are hardcore golfers. That's plenty of golfers to go after. You know, people really care about the game. People who have, a, you know, try to understanding about who the players are maybe have a sense of history, but really, really care about the game and really care about learning more about it, learning more about its history and and, and learning, you know, what they can do to, to help sustain the game even in a modest way. So I, I just think that the hardcoreness is not being catered to, certainly by the Golf Channel. You watch the Golf Channel, they have this big break on, which I call the big stupid. It just doesn't make any sense. I don't know what it's about. I don't get it. I don't know anybody who ever has ever played golf in the history of the world who watches that. You know, I'll ask, you know, people, strangers that I'll play with, have you ever watched a big break? No, why would I watch something like that for more than 30 seconds? I watched it and it was stupid. So I don't know who this programming is for. I don't get any of it. I don't get what the Faraday show is for. I don't get the people that he's interviewing who have nothing to do with golf. I don't want to know the six drugs that he takes. I don't want to know that he fell off the bicycle because he was too drunk. I don't find any of that amusing. I find all of that rather offensive. So, you know, it's all come down to giggles and nonsense and drug problems and short attention spans you know, and, and criticizing Tiger. Oh my God, the guy won 14 major championships. I mean, people just rip this guy to shreds. Yes, his game is completely in tatters, but let's not forget that he's still Tiger Woods. He could still might be able to play good golf. No, he's not going to win five more major championships. But he, yes, maybe he'll play good golf again, and we'd love to see him play good golf again and see how far that could take him. But to beat him up and to have websites now devoted to chunking chips at, at uh, Iowa last week is just a sad affair to me, and it's all so fringy and, and trendy and 
and and that the hardcore golfer is not being catered to, not in print anymore, and definitely not on television anymore. Mm-hmm. Peter, a couple more before we let you go, but just I want to carry on this 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 last thread. In that, you know, we we've got ESPN Classic out there that's got. Uh, you know, programming, old programming that, you know, that I still like to watch. We've got the father-son challenge this week because I think so many people still want to be able to see Mr. Nicholas, even though he's in his mid-70s yep. now, you know, play. Um, you know, the par three at, at, you know, at the Masters, at Augusta National, is always, you know, you know the hardest ticket to come by because we still want to see Mr. Nicholas and Mr. Player and Mr. Palmer play. You know, the, this this used to be the time of year, you know, in, in the golf season. We, we, I think we used to call it silly season, right? You had, the, you know, the skins game. And we still wanted to see those guys. And Mr. Trevino used to get involved, you know, at times when someone, one of the big three couldn't play. But we still love to watch those guys do something. It's it's just it's it's amazing to me that nobody is you know kind of grasping onto that and looking and saying you know gee there is still interest in hearing what these guys have to do. I mean, Mr. Nicholas was just named you know the the, the best uh, uh, golf course designer of the year. He's still one of the most powerful people in the sport of golf. I mean, people still love to hear what they're doing and watch what they're doing, and to think that we couldn't have a show for however long, whether it's a half an hour or an hour or whatnot, that has Peter Kessler interviewing these guys and talking to them, and you because know, they're still relevant in the game, you know, in the game of golf, just as a head-scratcher for me. Who gave Jack the golf course designer of the year? Uh, I'd have to look it up, but I just saw that on his, uh, on his uh, website a couple of yeah, days ago. He, yeah, he gave it to himself. There's no such thing. His, his stuff is so crazy. It's so crazy. I've never played a course of his that I wanted to play again. I've never played a course of his that I didn't swear that I would never play again. Each one is worse than the next one. The greens are so absurd. They're totally unplayable. I mean, look at Dove Mountain where they played the match play. It was ranked as the least favorite course by the players on tour. It was ranked the worst tee to green and the worst greens. That's hard to do. Worst course, worst tee to green, and worst greens all on the same golf course. I mean, I just totally don't get it. And I read a comment by him the other day saying, he had never gone to look at any of the golf courses of the great designers that came before him. Never went to see a Seth Rader course. Never went to see a Charles Blair McDonald course. Never had any interest because he was too busy building his own courses. You know what? I believe that. I believe that he's never taken any information from any other golf courses and applied it to his work. He played some of the greatest golf courses in the history of the world. Winged Foot, Donald Ross courses all over the place. And he didn't learn anything from any of those courses, not anything, not one time. It's all big mounds, and every hole is a dog leg right, and every green is a crescent shape to the right, and every green has bunkers on the left side so that you can't cut the ball unless you started actually on the green itself. I mean, none of it makes any sense for the recreational player. Um, Every time they play one of his courses, and even Muirfield Village, as beautiful as that looks on TV, members can't play it. Guys quit there by the dozens over years because every time Jack did something to it, he made it harder. So golf course designer of the year, no way. Nice guy of the year, definitely way. Greatest player who ever lived, greatest putter who ever lived, greatest thinker, best ball striker ever lived. I would give him all of those things. But as a designer, whew, do I give him an F? My goodness. Wow. All right. 
One last thing, Peter, before we let you go. I think one of the other things that you don't get enough credit for um, is you actually founded the first company. If, if I, if I, my my research is 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 on is on target. You founded the first company that made hybrid golf clubs. Is that right? That is true. Uh, it was actually well. It, the more true statement would be it was the first company to market hybrids because. In 99, TaylorMade came out with the Rescue Club. That was very much like what became a hybrid, except it was just, it was as long as a three-wood, so it was difficult to hit. The thing that the Perfect Club did that was interesting was it came out with a shorter golf club. You know, instead of making the hybrid 42 inches, the hybrid was 39 and a half inches, which is the exact length of a three-iron. So that club was essentially a three-iron shaft with a seven-wood head on it, if you really stripped it down. But yes, that the, that company was the first one to specifically market hybrids. That's true. Hmm. Very good. All right, well, Peter, thank you so much for being so generous again this week with, with your time. It, uh, I can think of no better way to spend an hour than getting to listen to you uh, share your thoughts, insights, and your stories. I can't thank you enough for continuing to join me on the show. You truly are the greatest interviewer and storyteller on the planet. Well, I'm thrilled to be with you. I really enjoy the show. I really enjoy the questions. I know it's going out to, you know, some of the finest people in the world are are, are listening to this show and I'm I'm honored to be a part of the proceedings. I'm honored if if I can get into the heads and ears of the people who listen to your show who do so much for our country. So I'm just thrilled to be with you. I think you're a fantastic host and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Peter. Look forward to uh, hoping you get get to have you on again real soon. In the meantime, happy holidays uh, to you and to everyone in your family. Same to you and yours and to everybody who's listening to us. All right. Take care, Peter. Thank you again. Thank you, my friend. Talk to you soon. You bet. Peter Kessler, the voice of golf. Boy, just, you know, to tap into Peter's history and the, the things that he knows about the game of golf going, you know, well beyond you know his his time on this planet is uh, absolutely outstanding, and uh, hope to have him on again real soon. Talk about some of the stuff even way back when he he no one knows more about Bobby Jones and uh, how the game actually got started before Mr. Jones than Peter Kessler. And we'll talk about that hopefully next time. All right, before we close up shop, I want to let you know about a a great book that's out there. You've heard me talk about it over the last several weeks. It's called A Golden 18, written by Roger Schiffman, and the photography is by one of our friends, one of the great photographers anywhere on the planet, Jim Mandeville. I'm sure you know Jim is the director of uh, photography for the Nicholas Companies. The book showcases some of Mr. Nicholas's greatest course designs, the stories about those courses, the way Roger wrote is fantastic. The photography is simply outstanding. Like I say, it is so good. You're going to want two copies of the book so you can take some of the pictures out of the first one and put them in frames. To get your copy, go to nicholas.com and hover over products and partners and then click on books and videos. If you love golf and stunning photography, you're going to love this book. And for this time of year, for the golfer who you say has everything, this is a great, great Christmas present. All right, everybody, it's time to put a bow on this one. My sincere thanks one more time to Peter Kessler for being such a great guest with me this morning, and I thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you the very most. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me, my co-host, Bob Lazari, and our announcer, Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live right here on the Armed Forces Radio Network every Thursday you can find us. Uh, our show airs live from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find us also on Blog Talk Radio. 
uh, and Friday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Boost Radio. Uh, we've been joined by legends from around the NFL and the CFL every single week. Please also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us, too. Next on the T and Thursday Night Tailgate, and check us out online. Next on the T.net and ThursdayNightTailgate.com. You can go there and stream or download any of our archive episodes for free and keep up to date with who our future guests are going to be. Thank you again for uh, choosing to listen to the show today. Like I say, I appreciate that you do that every single week. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. are happening at your friendly neighborhood Safeway. Stop by and see all the things that make a supermarket just better, like new low everyday prices on family favorites. Shop with your club card and pick up bananas for an incredible 48 cents a pound. And for an easy, delicious dinner, get whole roasted chicken for only $4.98. Bigger selections, friendlier smiles, lower prices. Safeway, it's just better. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.